Welcome to the Freshman 15, a film discussion podcast where we focus on the freshman works of 15 notable directors. Here's what we do. Each episode, we talk about a different freshman film, what's good, what's bad, what themes and stylistics the director went on to use in later films, and what was kicked to the curb. Also, we'll give you our opinion on whether the film still stands up, if it ever did, or if it's for completists only. I'm Daniel Long, and currently, even though my voice may not attest to this, I have a face hugger on me, impregnating me with a xenomorph. And I'm Jeremy Bear, and I had an imaginary friend as a child, but eventually I outgrew that, so I burned him with lye. Should we get started? Yes, let's do it. What are you doing out here? You're supposed to be laying low. I have one inside of me. What are you talking about? I just saw it. But it wouldn't touch me. Run away. It knows I'm carrying its future. Oh, bullshit. How do you know the things inside? I saw it. It's a queen. An egg layer. Can make thousands more like the one we've got here. That still sounds like bullshit to me. I need you to help me. I need you to kill me. Daniel, I was thinking about this the other day. When exactly did we come up with the idea for this podcast? I think we meant. I think you mentioned it. It wasn't I've, too long ago. I no, know, but it wasn't too long ago at all. And the reason I was thinking about it lately is because. I knew that there were, and I told you this early on, there were two directors, two freshman films specifically, that I wanted to talk about. I said, I don't care who we talk about, but I just, there's two that I want on. And one of the two is the film that we're, we're, we're talking about today. And so if anyone doesn't want to hear about this film, don't blame poor Daniel. Blame me. Blame Jeremy. I insisted. And I'm glad you did. I'm glad you okay. insisted. Yeah, I think, I mean, I haven't seen, I hadn't seen this film in so long. Right, and right. And so it was good to, to revisit and to watch it. We're going to see what happens. You know what? If you clicked on this link, you already know, so I'll spare the suspense. But of course, we're talking about uh, David Fincher's freshman film, which is Alien 3. Alien 3. His first film was part of a franchise of films. I'm an unapologetic David Fincher fanatic. Daniel, I suspect, and by the way, we haven't really talked really at all about what your opinion of Alien 3 is, so I have no idea what Daniel's going to say. So this is an exciting moment for me. Do you Mm. want to give a premise? You want me to do the premise? I can do it. I I feel like, I mean, given your your particular interest in Alien 3, not that I don't have interest in it, I I want to let you have the honor. All right, so uh, the, the premise of Alien 3 as I see it, of course this is the third film in the Alien series of movies. The main protagonist, played by Sigourney Weaver, playing the character of Ripley, she's been through many different battles with these alien xenomorph characters, and she finds herself stranded on a prison planet full of men only who are extremely religiously motivated. Mm-hmm. But what they don't know is that Ripley has brought with her an alien who's stalking not just her, and maybe not her at all, but actually the entire population of this prison planet. And she's got to figure out what she's going to do. They're screwed. Yeah, if you know anything about the Alien franchise, you know it's not going to go well for really anyone. No. Let's start in the usual way here. Do you remember where you were when you first saw Alien 3? I don't. What I do know is I saw it with my family, I think with my dad, because he was a huge Alien fan. And I know that, that we watched it together. Um, and I know it came out in 1992, so that would, I would have been 10 years old. I watched movies I shouldn't have watched 
So right. wait, so it may have been in the theater. It may have been not. You don't. You don't. I, I'm pretty sure it wasn't in the theater. I think I would have remembered that experience, but I don't, I don't think it was too far after. Do you remember what your opinion of it was? Oh, I loved it back then. I loved it. I mean, I love I love all the Alien movies, and, yeah. and I think that that this was no different to me. I, I mean, given my age, maybe given my I liked watching people get eaten by yeah. this alien and stalked, and and I loved, I even remember loving Ripley then. I just thought she was such a badass. Oh, yeah. She was so cool. But I'm. do you remember? You know, it's it, it's strange. Even though I'm like this Fincher fanatic, I genuinely don't remember when I first saw the movie. I'm sure I was an adult because I don't, I, well, I wouldn't have been allowed to watch Alien as a kid. And in fact, I remember being in college the first time I saw the original Alien. Wait, that's when you first saw the original Alien? Was yeah. Wow. Yeah, for a, for a film course. I'm sure I had some awareness of, of David Fincher. But uh, no, I don't really remember seeing it. It seemed at the time like an odd entry in, in the Alien mythos. I couldn't put my finger on what was odd about it. So I think I liked it, but I, I don't know. It does take a turn. I mean, it's certain, I mean, it's clear from the beginning. You're not going to be watching a, a later version of the first two films. Right. It's completely different. Um, so I guess here's a question. If we don't remember our first time watching Alien 3, do you remember your first, what was your first Fincher film? That's another good question. I'm sure it was either the game or Seven, one or the other. I don't know which one it was. I think I'm with you there. Seven, I'm pretty sure that was the one I watched. And then I think it was Fight Club. And then I don't think I watched the game until after Fight Club. Well, but it's very interesting to me what Alien 3 does. You watch it with different eyes when you know that we're going to sit here behind these microphones and talk Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. We talk about freshman films here, and we're talking about it in the context of, of the career of David Fincher. But with a movie like Alien 3, that's not the only context that you're forced to put it in the context of this franchise also. Right. I know. That was interesting to have to do that. Yeah. And I started trying, and it really made me evaluate for myself like what what's the criteria of what makes a good sequel or what makes a bad sequel because it's a real science honestly i we've all seen good sequels and we've all seen awful sequels we've definitely all seen awful sequels what makes godfather 2 so good and godfather 3 so bad you right. know like if you really analyze it yeah and that's a good question that i'm not sure i i had thought about explicitly, though I was doing that, critically thinking, oh, well, how does this fit? Is this a good number three? Well, this is one of the things that I, I made notes of because I started coming up with my own person. This isn't based on any research or anything. It was just my own personal criteria for what I think make for a good sequel. And so I wrote some of these down. Um, a good sequel, in my opinion, gives us more of the spirit of what we loved about the previous films. All right. It expands the universe of the previous film okay. or films. It gives us new insight about existing characters. There should be a sense of stakes hmm. to, a, to a good sequel. And I feel like that's what's missing in so many sequels is because you're like, well, you know, this is... No one really thinks that Captain America is not going to make it through Captain America or something. And I actually enjoy the Captain America movies. But that part of it, yeah, about the main character itself, I don't really feel worried about what's going to happen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because you know there's going to be another one. I mean, sure. yeah, yeah. In my opinion, it should defy the status quo of previous films with irreparable consequences. It's something should change. In so that it, movie. it should defy the, the the film that came before it, or the films that came before it. If that, any, yeah, if any kind of status quo has been established, it needs to defy that status okay. quo. You know, you the 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 situation shouldn't be the same as it was at the at the end of the previous movie. Put it that way. Stylistically, I think it sh uh, it should evolve. And this is this is a tricky one. 
it should progress the franchise storyline naturally. And I'm, I'll tell you right up front, I think this is where Alien 3 falls down. It's, it's, it's shoehorned, without a doubt. So explain, that, so explain that last one a little bit more for me. When I think sequels, I think of superhero films. Right. Dr. Doom is a pop, popular comic book character. Let's figure out a way in the first 10 minutes to bring these guys together so that they have to fight Dr. Doom. It doesn't matter if it's hoagie or if it's weird. Right. Well, to me, in some ways, that's the difference between sometimes a quality sequel or not is like, no, does this make sense with the, with the flow of what we've already seen and yeah. what's maybe likely coming? And, and I guess the, the, the only other thing was it should recall the previous films without winking. Yes, yeah, so so you that's a, that's a good point. So it's not so obvious. We're like, oh, I see what they're doing there. Yeah, and in fact, um, I would say that the winking thing—it's so hard to. I just hate it so much, and it's a pet peeve. When I see Stan Lee pop up in any Marvel movie, I turn to whoever I'm with, and I'm like, right. it, it makes me nuts. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's not there for the movie. It's there for nerds to feel proud of themselves. Oh, you know? I get. I saw him. Totally, totally. I will admit. As much as I love David Fincher, this is a flawed movie. But I would say maybe with the exception of the, is it progressing the storyline of the franchise naturally? I think Alien 3 is actually a very successful approach for a sequel. All right. I feel like it hits every, my personal criteria, you know, more the spirit of what we, you know, expands the universe. We learn more about the characters. There is a sense of stakes. See, my question when you were reading those your criteria was, did you make these for Alien 3? Because I thought, oh, it does all of those. It, uh, to me, I actually think it fulfills a lot of your yeah. a lot of your criteria in terms of what a sequel should do. Some better than others, definitely. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, and it probably was biased by the fact that I started really thinking about sequels in preparation for this episode. So maybe a little guilty there. But as a sequel in and of itself, like what, what is, is it, is it doing the things a sequel should do? And I think it actually is. I do too. And I think that I actually, I like it better than Aliens. I think coming off of, uh, and I think it shares a lot more in common with Alien than it does with aliens. In, oh, without a doubt. Yeah, in the sense of, of suspense and tone and, I mean, even camera work and lighting, and we can get into that. But I think that aliens, for me, was a little bit more heavy-handed than I wish it would have been, whereas Alien 3 isn't so much that way. Sure. And it, I think the subtlety I appreciate a lot more about Alien 3 hmm. and think that it's that it fits actually better right. in the at least the first three, then I actually think Aliens does. Though I like Aliens because it furthers Ripley's character. Yeah. And so I feel like I need it to get to Alien 3 to like it as much as I do. So I I will say this openly, and this is probably going to get a lot of people turning the podcast off, so I apologize. Don't turn it off. Don't turn it off. I don't care for Aliens. I think oh, I think kid. it's yeah. uh, I I think I think the the sins of it really have more to do with James Cameron than anything else. I'm not a James Cameron guy. For me, James Cameron movies feel like they were, even though they weren't, they're completely by James Cameron. He writes and directs his films. They feel like they were written in boardrooms. Yeah, and they were they're focus grouped and okay. Well, we need a we need a sassy Latina. Here oh, and here in this scene, we need you know, and it's just that that's that's how they feel to me. And the the dialogue is not good, right? There's no subtlety. In my opinion, the difference between James Cameron and David Fincher, 
the difference between Aliens and Alien 3 is a little bit of backstory. She has, uh, in the previous movie, Aliens, she took a, a team of, of Marines to, to shoot up just a whole nest of aliens and and it was it was it wasn't horror like the previous movie. It was action. It was action. It's like a war film. Yeah, it was a cheesy one at that. The only ones to escape were Ripley, one of the Marines, and a little girl named Newt. So they fly off and they do a thing where they do the hibernation chamber right. in the in the ship. But anyhow, when she crash lands on this planet, she discovers that uh, the little girl and the Marine both did not make the trip, and so she suspects it's because of an alien. Of course, she's right. But she demands that there's an autopsy. The doctor on this prison planet is is cutting open this little girl. And you see that there's a trickle of water going down the drain. And when he starts to cut her open, there's just a little thin stream of blood that oh, fills so the water. Yep. To me, that's the difference between David Fincher and James Cameron. James Cameron doesn't know how to do that. He doesn't know how to have a delicate moment. A light touch but still carries intensity with it or something like that. All he knows is lock and load and blow things up. And I'll be the first to admit that the iconic moment in Aliens, get away from her, you bitch, that moment. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a great adrenaline moment. <laughs> yeah, he spent two and a half hours building that one moment right, totally. with a bunch of crap that we didn't need to watch, but whatever. But with David Fincher, you're going to get a surgeon's precision with every shot. And I, I love that. And Alien 3, for all its sins, is filled with that. And I think that's interesting because it's juxtaposed with a lot of the other gore that I think you find in Alien 3, which you don't find in the others, at least, where it seems like the, the alien, when it, it does, or when the xenomorph um, kills people, it kills them very, I mean, it's very bloody. There's lots of blood squirting, um, which I think is different in this in the Fincher film than in the others. But I, I think you're right about the, the delicacy. Delicacy? Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. That just sounds weird when we're talking about opening up a body. It's, uh, yeah. But, you know, but it's yeah, tasty. When, uh, <laughs> Newt. Oh, poor Newt. Poor Newt. Uh, so, yeah, I think that in that moment, there was a sense of, of, of just a delicate moment. You have Rip, Ripley, who fulfilled in some way through Newt her motherly role that she wasn't able to do or to have, right, because uh, of being in hyperspace for so long. And you don't need to see, which I think, I wonder if James Cameron would have done this, you don't need to see blood squirting on their faces, right, right. when they're opening up the body. Yeah, I love, that's a, I'm glad that you brought that up. Just that little trickle of blood in the water really brings home what is actually happening. I love, and, and I know there are fans that hated this, they hated that the thing opens up with the, with the fact that the Marine, Hicks, is that his name? Yeah, Hicks. That Hicks and Newt were both dead. I loved it. I loved it too. I loved it so much because I loved that it was a middle finger to that second movie. It bothered me so much that they were trying to create this little family yeah. unit and all this kind of stuff. If you've seen Alien, you know this is not what these movies are about. No, you, you don't get that ending. It's about Ripley. Right. That's what. That's how Alien ended. That's how Aliens, I think, should have ended. I mean, Alien Three ends in a very different way than that. But still, it's it's her film. It's her story. Yeah. It's her journey. Alien will always be my favorite of the whole franchise. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just such a near flawless movie oh, in so, so many good. ways. It's yeah. just beautifully shot, beautifully acted. It was actually a largely improvised film, which is pretty amazing given the fact that it was a, a, a sci-fi horror. 
I did not know that. Yeah, in fact, you know, the famous story, of course, of the um, the chest burster scene from the first Alien movie. Ridley Scott didn't tell his actors that he was going to do it. No way. Yeah, they knew that they were going to have something to react to, but they didn't realize that an alien was going to pop out. So all those screams are legit. <laughs> But the thing that we had in Alien, which was beautiful, was that it was just one. Right. And where is it? And it could be anywhere at any time. Now, I also appreciate the fact that David Fincher doesn't give a crap about jump scares. Oh, not at all. And why would he? Because they're stupid. You know, I mean, let's be honest. Um, but he more, he wants to, he wants to create like a narrative. That's, that's a character narrative, a mood, a tone a color narrative, all these kinds of things he's very, very interested in. And it seems like he wants to say more than even just the story. He wants to do something through the story. He has things he wants to say or to explore themes or ideas. I mean, right off the bat, he has that here, where he's wanting to explore ideas of religion, masculinity, feminism. I mean, there's so many different things that he's exploring that he does that through all of his films. He has something that he wants to say. I would go so far as to say, and this is something I I thought about a lot, of the Alien franchise, because I know Ripley has been sort of a feminist icon in a lot of ways. I think think she's most successfully that in Alien 3. I think you're right. There's a moment, and I'm just going to go ahead and say it's my favorite moment of the movie. It's the moment where, we, of course, we have a funeral. Charles Dutton, he gives a speech. So good. You can see that Ripley is clearly moved. She's in a situation where this this is a planet that's filled with, you know, murderers and rapists and people of the of the worst kind and so she's been quarantined because, you know, well, there's there's They're men. Yeah, they're men. They and haven't seen a woman in years. Really, she's quarantined less for her safety and more for the fact that the warden wants to actually keep some sort of order. Well, she doesn't listen to it and she's still going to go where she wants to go and so she goes to the cafeteria and she approaches the Charles Dutton character. Dylan is that his name? Yeah. She's holding her tray of food. Right. She says something along the lines of, I, I just want to thank you for, for the words that you said. Say thanks for what you said at the funeral. My friends would have appreciated Yeah, well, you don't want to know me, lady. I'm a murderer and rapist of women. Really? Well, I guess I must make you nervous. She takes her tray and she sits down with him. Fantastic. It is a good moment. Fantastic. I don't have a little girl, but if I did, I would want her to see that scene. Absolutely. Because it, it carries with it, not just uh, she's, she refuses to be intimidated, but also there's this thing behind her eyes. And it really is a wonderful performance. You can see on her face, I've stared down things that would make you pee your pants. <laughs> and if you think that you just telling me that you murder and rape people is right. actually going to affect me, then you're out of your mind. And I, I just, I, I love it as a moment. See, and I think that that, I I see that moment and I I see all the things that you see, but I also see an intense amount of grace in that moment that she shows to Dylan's character in that, you know, I, I, I sense some fear. Here's a person who is guilty of all these things, yet has tried to make his life, tried to adopt some sense of religious living, thinking. Um, in many ways, is is the pastor of this congregation of men. He feels a sense of guilt. Maybe these things are rising up in him again because he sees this woman. Maybe he's having these urges or these these I don't know. This is a sense of guilt. So he he almost says that 
um, as intimidation, but almost an intimidation of, of I don't, like, you, are ma- you are making me kind of afraid. And that she almost reads into that and kind of sees that and says, well, I'm not going to let, I'm not going to even let you manipulate me in that way. No, I'm going to stand my ground here. I'm going to show you that I don't care too much about your feelings. I'm going to show you this, this sense of grace and say, look, you, yes, maybe you have these urges, but you can try to act out on them. I'm going to kick your ass. You know, that kind of sense, which I love. Yeah. And in a way, in, in a strange sort of paradoxical way, she's actually lending him dignity. Oh, so much. I, I, I was moved by that moment. Yeah. Yeah, it it really, and I mean, this of course is the part where two film loving guys now talking about feminism. But I think that's another reason that I I look at at Ripley as a feminist icon, and I think that she's the most feminist in this film because she is not only taking control of herself and her right. situation and acting as a leader, but it's in a way that I feel like James Cameron and Aliens didn't quite understand because he, here's here's the here's the fallacy about, in my opinion, about feminism. Feminism isn't about taking a woman and making her act like a man, right? And I think that that's what James Cameron thinks it is. Yeah, like I want to show that she's tough, so I'm going to make her look as much like a guy as I can, and I'm going to make her run around with a gun in the way that all these male Marines are. I'm going to put her in a robot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All this stuff. I'm going to I'm going to turn her into the Rambo action right. figure that I think that she could be and we're going to call that feminism. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with that. I don't think that's what feminism <laughs> is. I think feminism is Ripley walking into the cafeteria knowing who she is. I think knowing who she is and knowing and believing and trusting that she has a place at the table. Yeah. And I think that that that's one of the things I love about this film. And of course, there's the iconic moment when she, um, when she decided, which was a big deal in 1992, to shave your head as a woman. Oh, yeah. You know, whatever. We've seen Demi Moore do it. Natalie Portman's done it. You know, there's, all, there's this history of, of women in the last 20 years who have shaved their heads. And it's always like, oh, can you believe that? Sigourney Weaver did it first. And what's so great about it was it wasn't really even presented as a power moment. It was presented as a, well, this is what we do here because there's lice. Yeah, absolutely. It was completely pragmatic. And that's that's the way you want to play that moment. I like that. I don't ever think of her as something other than a woman. Even when her head is shaved. Yeah. No, she's Ripley. She, she right. is who she is. She's this character. She's this woman. She has a sense of, of herself. She has reason. I love that. I mean, right. She can reason along with the best of them in all the films, which is, is so good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she is crying for the little girl and she is, she does have a sexual relationship with the, with the prison doctor. And those moments don't feel diminished by the fact that she's coming up with plans and yelling out orders and leading prisons full of men into doing all these different things. It all actually feels of a piece somehow Mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. Here's the other thing, and uh, and to me, you just can't you can't separate these two things. They refuse to be divorced. Is how the film was made and what the film became. So you know a lot about this, you know, and I know that it has a troubled had a troubled production. There were a lot of things getting in the way of what Fincher wanted to do. So when I was a kid, I wanted to get married to Paula Abdul. Oh, because <laughs> I saw her in these music videos, and I just said, "This is it." Paula Abdul, in my opinion, is who she is because of David Fincher. David Fincher directed all these videos with right. her. Madonna. Uh, he directed The Rolling Stones, Michael Jackson. Nine Inch Nails. 
Yeah, I mean, he was just, he was a virtuoso music video director, and it was clear that if he had any sort of designs on becoming a, a feature film director, the world was going to be his oyster, because he had such a perfect technique, and he was just, the, he was an artist with a voice. The question was, what project was he going to take? And the trouble was, with the first, you know, feature of any director, any freshman film, they're, they're done on the cheap. But the thing was, David Fincher knew that in order to realize the kind of filmic vision that he would have for a feature and just the kind of guy he was, he was going to need an insane budget, even for a freshman film. So he had actually been presented with a bunch of different projects, but he would look at them and say, I can't do that. There's no money. Well, Fox comes along with Alien 3 and he says, eh, I don't really want to do a sequel. I don't really want to do a franchise movie. On the other hand, here's a project where I can basically have an almost unlimited budget because they're not going to cheap out on an Alien right. movie. I mean, this is the studio wasn't doing well, and they wanted Alien 3 to save Whoa. the studio in really? a way. Yeah. They'd had a couple of concepts. They didn't have a script. They didn't have a cast. They didn't have a director. They didn't have anything. All they had was a teaser that said, coming in 1992, oh, yes. Alien 3. And that was, that it. was it. And they put it out there, but they said, no, that'll, that'll be the light a, light a fire under our asses to, to get it going. They went through a few different possible directors and storylines. Long story short, David Fincher started shooting Alien 3 before the script was finished. Yeah, I heard that, which is insane to me. It's ridiculous. And I, I mean, there is all this drama behind the scenes. You know, he's trying to put together just something even vaguely coherent Meanwhile, his PA is making phone calls to the studio behind his back at the end of each production day without him knowing. And, you know, it's just the storyline, major plot points were changing during production. And so, you know, he's trying to, he's just trying to hold it all together. The fact that David Fincher was able to produce a, a, a movie that makes even some semblance of sense is astonishing. I can't tell you. It's it's absolutely astonishing. And I think that, that, that what that attests to is is his, his style. If there's anything about Alien 3 that seems coherent, it is a very distinct style. Right. Hearing you tell that story really makes me love Fincher more. Because oh, yeah. he said, okay, well, if I don't have a finished script, what is the one thing or a couple things I actually know how to do. Yeah. And how can I create something that's actually going to be have some semblance of, of coherence? And we get Fincher's style. He also had a fantastic cast. He did. I mean, when you look at the difference um, acting-wise between Aliens and Alien 3, it's just not even... A, I mean, say what you want about the script or the story or the success of the movie or whatever. The caliber of acting is really pretty unparalleled. Like, I look at... Um, Pete Postlethwaite, you know, he's one of the inmates. He doesn't hardly do anything. But the fact that you've got a, a, an actor of, of stage and screen, mm -hmm. the caliber of Pete Postlethwaite, essentially just, just standing there and staring at things and, you know, looking horrified. Right. One of the interviews that one of the producers gave about uh, on one of the extras of Alien 3 said... This is a cast that as soon as we wrapped the film, we could have we could have gone out and done Shakespeare in the Park with these oh people goodness. because it's just the kind of guys they were. It's true. And the variety of characters, I think, are, you don't get in any of the other films, at least up to this point. You have so many different types of characters. Yeah, yeah. So Fincher had a few things going for him. Now, he one thing that he just, even though no one knew that he was going to be David Fincher. Right. You know, no one had any How could idea. you know that? I mean, yeah. Um, but the thing is, he had the other, th but the, I think the main thing that he had going for him was this sense that he absolutely refuses to, to compromise. 
So I, I've told you before that I, you know, I, I direct spots and right. things like that now and then. I directed something toward the end of last year where uh, the crane operator that we hired, he operated the crane on a couple of Fincher movies. Whoa. You know, I had to know, like, right. okay, well, what's, what's going on? And he, and he just shook his head. I was like, what? I said, what is David Fincher? I said, I've heard he's a hard case. And he said, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't <laughs> describe it. And I said, what do you mean? He said, he'll make you cry because it's fun. Whoa. Yeah. And I said, well, hang on. <laughs> yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> he, says, he says he's made so many people cry on set just because he can do it. And it's, it's a message to the crew of, this is my picture. It's going to wow. be the way I want it to be. No one is going to mess with this thing but me. I think part of that is just that's who David Fincher right. is. And I think that's part of why he was able to survive Alien 3. But I think there's also a part of it that that's what Alien 3 did to him. If the movie is great, I'm going to get too much credit. And if the movie sucks, I'm going to get too much blame. My first movie, it's fairly well known, was a disaster. I stupidly felt that the people who were financing it had more to lose than I did. When the shit hits the fan, all of a sudden, everybody scatters and you're, you're the guy standing there going, wait, who's got a suggestion now? So if I'm going to take the blame, if I'm going to take the brunt of it, I'm going to make the decisions. And if you look at Alien 3 and then move from that to 7. Oh my gosh, I know. One of the most uncompromised movies I think I've ever seen right. in my life. I mean, it's just every single thing is such a specific voice and such a specific aesthetic. You can see in every frame of 7 that there's David Fincher saying, no, this is going to go the way I decide that it's going to go. There's there's not one pixel on one frame of that that doesn't have David Fincher written all over it. Yeah, and, and I guess one of the things about Alien 3 that I do appreciate, whether or not it was his decision, I still see the uncompromising nature of it. The way that he kind of changes the alien. The alien is different. Right. And then I think the uncompromising nature also of of just telling the story so bleakly in a way that, that makes it feel so dark and I don't want to say hopeless, though it feels that way, but I still think there's some hope to it. So, as you well know, Daniel, I'm a person of faith. It's something that I can't help it. I, I approach that the, film, the films that I watch right. in a lot of ways uh, from a faith context. And for me, it's something that's very hard to separate when mm -hmm. I watch... Alien 3. And that almost sounds crazy to say, like, you know, what are the theological implications of Alien 3? But for me, they're, they, they genuinely are there. The film forces you to think about that. Yeah, you can't not. And the thing is, and I feel dumb in a way, because I just, I think this was this thing that was cobbled together by a studio who's right. just trying to make, you know, a shit ton of money. And they're not trying to, you know, challenge people's, but the film does it anyway. And it, what, what's amazing to me is just the arc of it. It really makes me consider like, well, what is belief? What is faith and what's zealotry? There was a, another unpopular film that came out several years ago, uh, Noah, Darren Aronofsky. Mm -hmm. it, in some ways, it, it treads similar, a, a similar path. Now, people didn't care for Noah either. But uh, to me, I find a lot of parallels and a lot of interesting implications in both of them because... It sort of forces you to walk that line of like, you know, what, what is religious fervor? Right. And is it valuable or is it delusional? And if it is delusional, is it a helpful delusion? 
And I see these guys on this prison planet that have nothing. Really, you can just see in every frame of it, the, the, the insanity has just crept in. There's even a part of it where the, the doctor is trying to describe to Ripley what role God and faith mm -hmm. and religion plays on this planet. What kind of religion? Some sort of apocalyptic millenarian Christian fundamentalist. Um, right. Exactly. But, you know, even the way he's describing it, it's just kind of a shrug because you can see that he doesn't buy it. But, you know, by the end of the movie, you see the Dylan character and he's in the bottom of this of this pit where he's about to have hot lead poured on him. Mm hmm Okay, heavy-handed, yes, but the but the final scene with Ripley, where she's clearly in a in a crucifixion pose and the whole thing. But you just get that sense where you're like, okay, yeah, well, maybe Dylan is deluded. Maybe Ripley isn't really a Christ figure. But in this context, for some reason, all those philosophies are still coming together, deluded or not. There's something they're present. They're they're present, and there's something real about it. Like I said, for me, coming from a faith context, I get very inspired by that. I know, and I do too. And I think that because I also come from a faith context, and one of the things I appreciate about the film is is its relentless, uh, the relentless nature of questioning the presence of something, right? Whether that be God, hope, a savior of some sort. But it's constantly questioning, is something going to come? Will there be something there? Is the only s sort of physical thing that might allude to some other world is this creature, this beast, right? right. And I can't help but think of the post-apocalyptic revelation in the Bible, of right. the beast and, and um, what it's going to do to people. And, uh, and, I, and I love how you can't get around the fact that in these, in these moments— and in these places that these that these people, these men, need something to hold on to. Mm. And it becomes this fundamentalistic Christian or apocalyptic faith, whatever it is. But it becomes their worldview. They see everything through this lens. And that's what I love about the film is it's not I don't know if it's so much saying, okay, well here's what these people believe, but it is really exploring how is belief being used? How is faith actually playing a role in people's lives? Which I think is a valid question for people who of faith, people not of faith. Yeah. Is is what does belief, what does faith, what does it do for you? Right. Sort of the paradox about this movie is there's so many complaints about the look of the movie. Oh, it was shot terribly and all this kind of stuff. I completely challenge that. I say that far and away, it's the it's the most beautiful alien movie there is. I think you're right. I mean, you, you, you can see David Fincher is the kind of director where and there's only a handful of these. I can take a still frame from a David Fincher movie and say, that's a David Fincher movie. Hmm. I, I think maybe there's, I mean, you know, you, you could probably say that about like Wes Anderson, maybe one or two other directors. And I think it's because he just, he has this, he has this sense of light and color and composition, and he does a Fincher thing. And I don't know how else to describe it. He <laughs> does a Fincher thing that he, that's, it's the way he composes his frame. And uh, even in the worst of his films, Benjamin Button, <laughs> it's still beautiful. You yeah, know, it is beautiful. You can still you can still see exactly what you're supposed to see. And I thought that the camera angles in this film were really interesting can't remember a lot of shots where the camera is at equal height as yeah. the character. They're either above or below. Right. And Usually below. Yeah, usually, especially in this film, uh, which, in, I mean, talking about power and faith, the interesting connection there. But I'm curious, is that something that, that is pretty consistent throughout his films? I know he does a lot with the camera, but in those specific angles? He's very intentional with, with where he puts his camera. 
he's very keyed into the idea of who has the power in the scene, whether it's in a conversation or whether it's in a fight or whatever it is. And he tends to orient his camera based on who has the power in that scene. Again, not one of my favorite Fincher films, but still uh, just so beautifully shot as the girl with the dragon tattoo. Right. Well, of course, the scene that everyone remembers from that film as the rape scene. Mm -hmm. Difficult scene to watch, but purely from a formal craft perspective, it's just, it's astonishing really how it was put together. When you see Rooney Mara and she's she's just being ravaged by this enormous guy, um, he puts the camera at a level with the bed that, that gives you the sense that she's drowning in it. Almost like she's trying to fight for air to get above wow. the horizon line of this bed. And it's just, yeah, it's partly performance, but even more so it's camera placement. Oh, absolutely. And so he's, he's, it's so intentional. Again, most iconic scene in the film, the final scene of Seven, mm-hmm. where... Oh. Um, Beautifully done. And of course, the whole scene, which is something Fincher doesn't do, so that's why it's so remarkable, is he shot the scene in handheld. Mm-hmm. You see Brad Pitt, you go back to Morgan Freeman, right. Brad Pitt, and just in the, the camera movement is getting like more and more sort of just frantic and all that kind of stuff. And then you'll cut to Kevin Spacey as John Doe. The camera's locked. It's there. It's, yeah, yeah. It's a. It's it's on. It's on Gibraltar. It's not moving. And then we go back to Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. Everything's in chaos. You you know we're panning up to helicopters and all kinds of things. But John Doe, even though he's kneeling on the ground, has all the power in the scene. Yep. He didn't quite have his craft to that level yet when he was doing Alien Three. And there's sometimes you can tell he's moving the camera around just to move the camera around because well there's drama there and I'm sure the studio. Felt like they wanted bang for their yeah. buck or something. But he's still putting it in the right spot. And that's, I don't know, I, I just, I, I say it over and over, but that's Fincher. Absolutely. I mean, that scene, you could argue that in Aliens, that maybe the iconic moment is the get away from her bitch moment, right? But you really have the iconic moment in Alien when the alien bursts out of the person. Yeah. You have the iconic moment in Alien 3 when the alien is what appears to be sniffing out Ripley, right? When it's the first moment when when she realizes, oh, this thing isn't going to kill me. She doesn't necessarily know why at that point. But that moment where the camera's locked, it's a moment of utter chaos for her. But the camera is doing the thing that it needs to do. Yeah, You are in the moment of the alien at that point. This is his or its this is its moment. Yeah. It has all the power. That's not, that, that's a good point. I love that. Yeah. And this is what I was about to say earlier. But anyway, people people complain about how it's shot. But really what they're complaining about is are the visual effects, which were not that hot. Right. Especially the scenes that use puppetry, which is how they animated the... The alien? The alien, yeah. And it was, it was blue screen puppetry. And the mat is just really not well done. And Ripley's... Uh, spoiler. Ripley's death scene... At the end right. is, I think, should have been the most iconic moment, but the effects were so awful that it wasn't. And so, by the way, this is something, um, there's two versions of the film. There's the theatrical cut and there's the special edition. In the end, I think the special edition, which is like 20 minutes longer, is better. You get more character moments. There's a whole subplot, which I think is actually important to the mm-hmm. film, about uh, the Gallic character. But the trouble with the special edition is they changed this huge iconic moment for the worse, in mm. my opinion. And it's the moment that's it's Ripley's death scene. Well, in the theatrical cut... I think bursts out of her, right? It bursts out of her. And I know that Fincher's intention was never to have 
the thing burst out as it was again. But to me, it's an important moment. Why I, do you, yeah, why is that? Why is it important? Yeah. The way that Ripley handles that moment, I think, is an important piece of closure for her character. You know, I mean, clearly this is her Christ moment. I think that it's the perfect demonstration of the sacrifice. Even while she's falling, the chest burster comes out of her and is trying to escape her body, and she grabs it, and she holds it in her body as she falls in. Wow. Heavy-handed, yes, it is, but as a, a piece of iconography, I think it's a very, I think it's a very important moment. That's interesting. But I couldn't help but think about the artist, I think you'd say Andres Serrano, I think that's his name, who, um, the Piss Christ guy. Right. Who, because that scene to me, the colors... I don't. I, I think that piece of art came before this film. I don't know if Fincher was um, inspired by it, but I can't help but see that yeah. in that moment, which I found was. In, I thought that was interesting. It, it is interesting. Almost this idea, right? You have this savior figure being defiled, overcome by this by this fire, by this world, by this thing. I don't know if that connects, but yeah. I thought that was interesting. It is. So we haven't talked about what we don't like. So I was disappointed in the characterization, or the lack thereof. I wish I would have known or gotten to know more characters. I mean, Dylan, of course, Clemens, the the doctor that um, Ripley has sex with, uh, and there's some sense of, of relationship there. I do like the assembly cut, having Gallic in there. I think he becomes a Judas figure, which I think is really important, given all the religious Most definitely. imagery. The one thing, so this is the thing that was glaring for me that I didn't necessarily like, is the music. I thought the music in this one was a little bit jarring and took me out of the film. I think that, and I think that's a testament to Fincher's direction, mm. is that I think he does so much, uh, and probably because of directing music videos, he actually does so much with the camera that I kind of get a sense of what's actually going on and the tone and how I'm supposed to be feeling where I don't need this music. And I actually feel like sometimes there was a, an unhelpful juxtaposition of what was going on that I didn't like, or maybe, maybe more of a manipulation. Because there is this orchestral quality to it. I was actually thinking about when you were talking, the, the closing of the film. Oh, I love the operatic moments, the orchestral moments. It's the other stuff I just can't okay. handle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because in all honesty, I don't really hear the music that much, but I did notice it in that moment where you see doors closing and those kinds of things, which um, to me is actually kind of a nice button. My perceptions are color. I think every, I think every David Fincher movie should be scored by Trent Reznor, frankly. Oh, I know. Seriously. And so it's kind of weird to see one where it's just like a pretty standard orchestral, mm -hmm. you know, scoring. But what I did like going back to the beginning, I think that one of the things David Fincher does better than any other filmmaker is are his credits. His opening credits to his films, I think, are so good. And even in this one, he splices the credits with what you think is happening to Ripley. Oh, he, he intercuts the, yeah. Oh, and that is just so good. And yeah. you see that all throughout his films. Is he's, he's doing really interesting things oh, yeah. with the opening sequences. Yeah, I, it's just I, 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 one of my favorite moments. Uh, I remember seeing it for the first time and thinking, I'm going to like this movie. When I saw, you know, there was a, there was a credit that came up. And then you saw the crack in the glass. Right. And then it just went right back. And I'm like, okay, this is this is something that's a complete departure from the James Cameron yeah. aliens. It, it was just, this is going to be handled with subtlety. And I appreciate that. 
We're supposed to be talking about stuff we don't like. I, I know. know. <laughs> I, I did. I took us. I, I led us astray. Maybe you could answer this. I don't know how it's so clear that she's carrying a queen. Yeah, that is odd. I mean, she seems to recognize it, but when you actually see the x-ray, it looks just like a regular xenomorph alien without any kind of right. specialness about it. And I mean, for me, the the thing that is the biggest sin of the movie is are the visual effects. I, I feel right. like they were so, they look so rushed. I don't know. It's just such a sin. It to, is. To, for, to take a David Fincher movie and put such shitty effects on him. I mean, and I thought the first time you actually see the the um, the alien creature in its small form coming out of the um, the ox, at least in the assembly cut. I think it's a dog in the theatrical cut. That's right. Um, and I actually thought it didn't. I thought it looked fine. Like that moment. Yeah. I thought it was good, but then every other moment when you're seeing it run or when you see it get close, yeah, it just kind of looks silly. Yeah. Yeah. I do lose my sense of what's happening a little bit with the um the corridor trap yes me too sequence after a while you're like hang on what are they even doing and you know and you come back around with it you're like okay they're trying to get him into the piston chamber and all that and that that makes sense but it's not it's just kind of like hastily blurted out like earlier like oh this is the piston and then there's a 20 minute sequence about this thing that was blurted out in about eight seconds and so, you know, you eventually come back around to understanding it. But uh, but what are some other themes you see that even in, that we might see in Alien 3 that we see through his other, that we see through the rest of his films? Are there any threads that, that we can kind of locate? Are you talking more about visual style or in storytelling? Are you talking about like story or you mean? Yeah, I think I'm talking, I'm talking story. I'm talking, I mean, I, I think that he's a, he's a filmmaker whose stories often explore what it looks like to fight against that's the establishment or a or a, a certain level of power um which he does here and i'm wondering if if you, there are others like that that you might see in his other films i mean i think that i think that you're asking a question that's higher than probably what my answer is honestly david fincher loves making movies about killing <laughs> I, you know i mean i i i, I wish i had a more <laughs> <laughs> a more, uh, I don't know, eloquent way to put No, I think there's something it, there, though. That's, a, that's an interesting, I love that response. It's true, though. I mean, if you look at so many of his of his films, they're about killers and killing. Uh, he's been called the king of the serial killers. I mean, I mean, how many of his movies are about someone who's been killing people right. and they need to be stopped? You know, I mean, if you think about in the overall soup of all the things that you can possibly tell stories about, that's a pretty specific thing. And about half of his movies at least are about that. Well, you know, Seven, Zodiac, Gone Girl, Alien, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, a serial killer movie mm-hmm. also. And there's just so many, something is killing people. Yeah. Yeah. And even, I, I mean, this might be a stretch, but I think social network, you know, no one gets murdered, but a friendship and relationships certainly do. Yeah. No, I've not thought about that with regard to Fincher, even though it's so obvious. I don't know. I mean, so he seems very, very interested in that subject and he does it so well and it's it's interesting too because you have to juxtapose that with the fact that he is such a delicate filmmaker and his compositions are fragile is the wrong word but is delicate i don't know how else to put it but yet he deals with such brutal brutal material Mm -hmm. i don't know what that is what you know why he likes to wedge those two things how those two things butt up against each other just that that surgical precision with I don't know. I guess death in general. 
is is kind of an obsession for David Fincher. Yeah, that's good. Death and and even these killers who could can be argued have a certain level of surgical precision about how they go about doing things. Yeah, in a way, I think he's got a he's got a few things in common with Darren Aronofsky who I would go so far as to say almost exclusively makes films about suicide. Yeah, that's true. But David Fincher is all about how one person causes the death of another. Yeah. Or how one thing causes the death of another thing, you know. That's that seems to be his his bag for some reason. I don't know. Am I making that up? No, I think you're right. That's great. I love that. So, um 10 films, David Fincher. Where where does Alien sit? It's somewhere in um, eight, nine, or ten. The thing is that there, I actually think that his like to say that if a David Fincher film is number ten is not is to say that that number ten is better than so many other films. So it's really difficult. But right. um, yeah, I'd say my least favorite of the Fincher films are, and it's not to say I don't like them. Mm-hmm. Um, probably Alien Three, Benjamin Button, and maybe The Game. What about you, dude? I Daniel longed it. You have a number. I, got, I not only have a number, I've got them all. In an ordered oh, list. Yes. Yeah. All right. I, I won't burden you with the whole list. Come on. <laughs> I want to be burdened. Lay it on me. Okay. All right. So, so. Oh, wait, where are you going to start? I don't know. You want me to count them up or count them down? Oh, man. I want you to count them down. Count them down from 10? Yes. Okay. Curious case of Benjamin Button for me is easily number 10. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's the only missable David Fincher film, in my opinion. I think he just, he was the wrong guy for that project, okay. you know? We don't need David Fincher directs Forrest Gump. Right. No, but anyway, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's, it's but it's gorgeous, so. Right. In that sense, no, it's not missable. Number nine, Alien 3. I love the movie. I'll always love Alien 3, but the stuff that's bad about it is not his fault, in my opinion. Uh, eight is The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I like the film. It lacked a little focus and coherence, but, you know, that's... I really like that movie. I do, too. I do, too. From a visual perspective, it's just each scene in and of itself is fantastic. Right. Um, seven, Panic Room. Sorry, I thought you said seven at that point. I was like, what? No. That's crazy. Okay. No. Okay, number seven. Number seven is, is Panic Room. Room. Number six is Gone Girl, which I, I think Zodiac used to be his most underrated film, but now I think it's Gone Girl. Okay. It's a work of art. I think so, too. Um, five, the game. I love the game. Mm-hmm. I have no hesitation about putting it that high. I think it's great. Um, I think it's one of the greatest movie endings of all time. I think you, I love that film too. And I think you're right about the ending. Yeah. Number four is seven. Okay. I don't know. This was, I, I, I kept going back and forth between three or four, three or four. I'm going to put seven at number four. Zodiac for me is number three. Okay. I, I just... I, I think it's so strong. It's at some one of the top two for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, number two is Social Network. It, it was this weird thing. It shouldn't have worked. An Aaron Sorkin script with a David Fincher film. I that's know. that's not supposed to work. But it, it's it was so good. It was so good. Number one, it's just not even close. It yeah. has to be Fight Club. Yeah, I mean, for there's, sure. there's nothing that, that was. You have films that are great, and then you have films that you love and they mean a lot to you, and then there's this weird category of film that you know that you're a different person for having watched it. And yep. that's how I feel about Fight Club. Oh, me too. And let's not remind us, though I will, that it came out the same year. As American Beauty. Call back yeah. to the last episode and the depressing reality. Yeah. And The Phantom Menace. Let's not forget The Phantom <laughs> it was, Menace. It was a year of dizzying highs and low lows. 
<laughs> Let's not forget the Phantom Menace. No, but oh, um, so yeah, that's all that's a great to list. Say. Thanks for doing that. Wow, I'm so I'm. It makes me happy that you were actually interested in my order. Oh come on, I was. Of course, I'm interested in your. Thank order. you. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, have I squelched you in the past when you had an order you wanted to give? Um, you know, I don't know if you squelched me, but I've also I've I have felt a little self conscious having numbers. You shouldn't. I know. I don't now. I love you making have ten numbers. Of them. Yeah, look at that. Yeah. So do, should we watch? Should people watch this? Should people watch Alien Three, or is it a completist movie? I think people should watch it. I think that I think people should watch it, and I think as I did in preparation for this podcast, I watched one, two, and three pretty close together. I think you should do that. It's they're worth revisiting, and it's certainly worth your time to watch Alien Three and to kind of to really learn where David Fincher started. Yeah, I mean it's 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 almost a weird question, the completest question with this because. You're probably not going to want to watch it without having seen the first two. Right. I mean, what would be the point? Well, I mean, it's still a pretty movie, but watch the first two first. I you mean, need to. I mean, you need you need Ripley's backstory. Yeah. I, it, it just, it's it, it has a lot more weight to it when you've seen the others, but I agree. It's a great movie. It, it really is. I, I don't, I don't understand why it's just, it's gotten shit on so much. I, 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 I want people to see that it's good. And they don't. And in fact, David Fincher himself distances himself from the movie, which I think is a shame because he made a really, a really impressive piece of art. So he disowns it. He says this is, he's like, well, yeah, he doesn't want to take credit for it or what? He's pretty famously avoided interviews about it. He gave one interview that you can find online um, with, it was some British newspaper. And he got honest with the reporter and said, this was an awful experience and, you know, and he was more talking about the experience and the quality of the movie, but right. I think it was just such a, I think it was just like a PTSD situation for him and he just doesn't. I think though it's part of the reason that he's the director that he is, is because that was his freshman film. It was David Fincher versus the world to get that thing made and get and to get it done in a way that had any sort of art or beauty to it at all. And you think that he has to be considering that possibility now with every film in order to remain this... This this high strung, compl- or this perfectionist. You know, he probably thinks that every film I'm going to get screwed. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you um, the as as I mentioned before, the the guy that I worked with, the crane operator. I said, you know, I've heard that David Fincher asked for a lot of takes. He said, oh, you have no idea if he's got a shot set up, he wants thirty, forty, seventy takes. Oh my gosh, he'll do it. It was interesting seeing um, details about how the social network was made. And you hear the actors talk about the process of it. And they'll talk about the fact that you just, you know, you get you get five or six takes out of your system. And then it just starts to all go flat. And you see performances starting to flatten out and just oh everything. And that's where most directors are like, okay, okay, okay. We got to stop because this is just going downhill. But that's David Fincher just getting started. He, he still got... 50 more to go. Yeah, because he finds this thing that happens, you know, 15, 30 takes in that actors start forcing themselves to discover things just to keep their own sanity. Wow. And so that's why he gets these kind of astonishing little moments because it's just he's made them like a marathoner or something like that. It's just like you, they have to find something new within themselves that they didn't even know existed. To just to get through that day, you, and you know? get yeah, and you get performances in Fincher films that you don't uh, that are surprising, like actors you've seen in many other films 
you see in a Fincher film and you think, oh, I didn't know that they were capable of that or I've never seen them do that before. And that's probably why. It's because they get to a point where they're like, okay, I have to find, I have to figure this out. You know, that, that final scene in Seven, Brad Pitt, I mean, that's, you'll never, you won't find a better performance from him. Oh my gosh, I know it. He really, really grabs onto that thing. I'm talking about David Fincher, that, that I'm going to make you go deeper. Even if you don't want to, you're, you're going to come with me. And that's just the way this is going to work. I mean, and has Michael Douglas had a better performance? Than oh, wow. Could, I mean. <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> that, yeah. It's true. Well, Daniel, I want to thank you for agreeing to be, to, to, to do the, the Alien 3 David Fincher episode. I really appreciate it. You I, know my affection. Oh, I think it was a great suggestion. I'm, like I said, I'm glad to have seen it. And I don't necessarily have strong feelings one way or another. Is this an incredible film? Is this a terrible film? I feel pretty like down the middle. It's worth watching. Not my favorite, but really not, not that bad. But there's so much in that film to talk about. So I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to to talk about all that stuff. Yeah, me too. Um, well, all that's to say, um, and this is how it usually goes, maybe Daniel and I just have similar opinions on films, but we're in agreement. Watch the other Alien movies and check out Alien 3, particularly with a, with a mind towards checking out the entire body of work of David Fincher. You're not going to be disappointed. It's a master artist at work. And let's be clear, Jeremy and I, we don't talk about the films necessarily like, oh, we're going to do a film this week that we agree on. Or we just we just watch the films and we happen to agree most of the time. Yeah. Um, is that our fault? No. There's whole genres of films that you and I, I think, disagree on. We've had the discussion about superhero films, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Daniel yeah. hates them. I don't, I don't like superheroes. I, and, I, and I love superheroes. If I could be one. You can't tell. But right now, we are sitting in a room. Daniel is actually recording next to a massive comic book rack filled with superhero stories oh, yeah. as, he, as he talks about hating superheroes. Mm-hmm. And I just I, I pull the, the comics out, and I just throw them on the ground yeah. sometimes while we're, while we're recording it. And he micturates. I micturate on it, on them, multiple times, not just once. So sometimes it's the same one every week. I just pull it out. Actually, what he what he always says is, "I hear your vulnerability is the color yellow, Green Lantern," and then he pisses on his face. You see, I can't even. I don't even know that reference. I don't even know that reference to be able to have a comeback. That's how much I don't like. So I actually don't hate the superheroes that much. But you know what? If you want to reach us to tell us what you think of this episode of the podcast, you can find us on Facebook, Freshman 15 Film, Instagram, or you can drop us a line at Freshman15Film. That's Freshman15Film at gmail.com. And if you have a freshman film or director you want us to talk about, to explore, please let us know. We're open to suggestions. Uh, we also like to hear feedback, so if you have any any thoughts on our episodes, why, why we're wrong or dumb, or why Jeremy's big list is is a list that you just disagree with completely, um, please let us know. That's freshman15film at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, so drop us a line. And before we go, we want to mention our friends at Steelcraft, which is in Long Beach, a shipping container community of eateries. Born of a desire to see people come together over food and drinks, Steelcraft unites local eateries with a communal dining space in Long Beach. For more information, visit steelcraftlb.com. 
Thanks again for listening to the Freshman 15 Film Podcast. I'm Daniel Long. And I'm Jeremy Bear. We'll talk to you next time. See ya.